Hi again, this is Anna. And this is Elsa. And this is the Cycle 2 episode of Back Pages, our book and wrap-up podcast for our pilgrimage together. So what's in store for this time, Elsa? Well, we're going to start by talking about why we titled this cycle Fragile Rain. And then you'll talk a little bit about the idea of humane history, which is thinking about the difference between history as an ego project and history as a justice and thriving project. And finally, we'll touch on mascots, mottos, and activating our joy muscle. As a way to keep moving on this pilgrimage over the Advent pause and as we come together again in January. And the question we're going to be focusing on, how do we do sometimes challenging justice work even in the midst of the coldest time of the year? Glad you're with us. Let's get started. We had a really hard time naming this cycle, Elsa, and I remember having lots of conversations about it with you because we knew that it was going to be, in some ways, some of the harder-hitting content of the pilgrimage in general because yeah. of some of the misconceptions that we have about our own history in Wisconsin and Minnesota in this time period. But we really wanted to focus on honesty and clarity about the power of white structural dominance in this era. And that's how we got that word reign, like R-E-I-G-N. And yet we also wanted to underline the agency and resistance of BIPOC folks or BIPOC folks. And so that's how we got that word fragile in there because those two words together really spoke to some important dynamics. Exactly. And because history shows us that systems built on domination are always more fragile. And the Bible would actually point us in this direction as well, from Pharaoh to the exile in Babylon to Caesar. So this concept of the fragile reign of dominance systems and systems of inequality not only is upheld by history, but is upheld by the God that we want to confess is pointing us in a direction of thriving and wholeness and better ways of doing community together. So it's a part of our faith as well. And on top of all that, I want to emphasize that there never was a moment where BIPOC people went quiet and suddenly stopped pushing or resisting, even in some of the most difficult situations in our history in this landscape and in this country. The form may have changed, crisis or despair sometimes loomed large and there were sometimes broken hearts and other dynamics that were getting in people's way but people of color moved through those times and in spite of that many of those stories of resistance and resilience and perseverance were ignored or erased or buried and even sometimes vilified by mainstream history. So we don't even always see this thread in our mainstream histories and the way we've been taught history. So this idea of fragile reign is pretty strong and pretty important in the way that we have to rethink our own histories. So that's really interesting, but we actually wanna take a pretty significant detour right now in order to emphasize some of these dynamics because they really were a fundamental piece of how we put this cycle together. So focusing on this theme of how mainstream histories tend to even vilify or erase the, these stories of resistance. 
And a great example of this is if you all think back to your materials from our week one readings in this cycle, there was a video from the Minnesota Historical Society about the Dakota War, I think was the title of the video. And in that first video, there was a brief statement from one of the descendants of one of the white settlers in the area that was sort of almost finger wagging at the Dakota warriors who began the uprising for attacking, quote, the wrong people or innocent people. And, you know, Elsa, you and I talked a lot about whether we could even use the video because yeah. of that particular comment, because it was so unmoored from history in some yes. ways and and deeply entrenched in a distinct perspective exactly so we kept it in there because we will never be able to create completely clean resources that don't have diverse perspectives in them and perspectives that we're going to have to wrestle with whether it's historical perspectives or perspectives of people today who have a certain view on history so we're leaving some of these things in here where it's necessary partially because as a pilgrimage group we need to wrestle with these things. And we did notice that some of the small groups actually picked up on this and talked about it, but in some ways that we want to kind of push back on and complicate a little bit. So if we're thinking about this idea of attacking the wrong people or attacking innocent people and kind of finding some fault there, one of the things that we need to think of from the historical point of view is that the Dakota warriors who made that initial act of violence were actually teenagers or young adult men. So these were, let's say, 18 to 23 year olds who had seen their relatively stable childhoods disintegrate as young adults due to the predatory system of treaties. So if you think about the layers of trauma and desperation and youth that they might have been bringing to that moment, it can give us a little bit of insight into some of the dynamics that were going on for them. And maybe it can help us understand how in, in some ways rash this choice was, but the context and the long lived history context that it was coming out of. And then to know that after that decision or that moment that caused such violence, they went home and there were significant disputes that evening within the Dakota community about what to do next. There were meetings and conversations that were very serious and there were split conversations about whether these young men should be turned in or whether the strife and struggle should continue, whether there should be further uprising and action, all sorts of different ideas. And what that highlights is that there are always conversations within communities of color going on about the right way or the best way or the most strategic way or the most helpful way to do resistance and activism. So there are multiple strategies and there can be ways in which people turn that against communities of color instead of just understanding that this is a normal way of dealing with complex realities and very sometimes very sudden decisions that need to be made. And you know, Anna, before we leave this particular subtopic, I think I want to talk a little bit about the idea of white innocence. Mm. As many in the area that were affected by the Dakota uprising of 1863 will talk about, they'll say that everyone suffered in the uprising. Mm. But when we frame white settlers as merely innocent victims, I think it leaves out some really important elements. And you talked a little bit about that initial attack, but there's a couple things that I think I want to name as violence preceding that. 
First of all, the white farmers knew and were happy to take land from the Dakota, and they knew that the Dakota had just had to be displaced as a result. They were also happy to ignore the suffering of the Dakota that many of them saw happening, and that most of those white settlers never raised a finger or their voice to alleviate any of that suffering. And I think that really plays into the pattern that we referenced in the conversation seeds document and that Lindsay also alluded to of overemphasizing BIPOC violence and ignoring white violence. And this is why we've been really intentional in calling this event the Dakota Uprising as opposed to the Dakota War, which frames it as a response to structural violence. And these choices in how we respond to the suffering of others are what mirror the ones we, if we're white people, face today. As participants in an anti-racism course, it's our job to take the next step if we are tempted to talk about innocence and violence and lay blame at the feet of people of color, we need to look earlier in that sequence of events and ask who had the power in the system and where it could have been interrupted. Right. And I think those questions are ones that we're going to have to keep struggling with because it's so easy to take too narrow a view of events in history which really obscures, as we talked about in our Conversation Seeds video as well, it obscures the patterns. Yeah. And it obscures the dynamics that lead up to and emanate from certain events that, that actually tell the story in a really powerful way. And so kind of returning to this idea of how we came to the title and theme of this cycle, I also wanted to name that one of the things that we wanted to highlight was the fact that just living a joyful daily life is another resistance strategy. So we've talked about forms of resistance that may have been legal resistance. We've talked about forms of resistance that may have been uprisings, but living a good life is a form of resistance and resilience. And we're going to talk more in cycle four, our Lenten cycle about this, but it's worth mentioning that we stressed the daily life patterns of particularly black and Chinese folks in this era, because we absolutely mm. must not replicate the white cultural practice of erasing BIPOC stories altogether, mm -hmm. or only focusing on the pain. Yeah. And, you know, I've mentioned to you before that sometimes uh, particularly white people will come and tell me about the most recent book from an author of color that they've read that is about a very sad story about, you know, historical pain or present day pain of a certain BIPOC cultural group or is a nonfiction book about, let's say, something like mass incarceration. And it just really hurt them. It made them sad. It made them think. I think all of that is really good, but I've mentioned to you before that one of the things that I always ask myself is, but what is that going to change in what you do? Mm -hmm. If I read that book, how is that going to change how I live? What actions I take in the world? Because otherwise I'm just consuming someone else's pain and it enriches me. Like I'm not trying to make that sound bad, but it does end up becoming a sort of consumeristic thing that yeah. can be a very damaging dynamic that actually this whole pilgrimage is trying to push against 
So that when we read these stories in this pilgrimage, we're always then focusing on taking action. We're always then focusing on responding and asking ourselves, what are we going to do differently? How are we going to speak differently in the world as a result of this? So that it's not just consumption based. And how do we transform ourselves? Exactly, exactly. So in light of all of this and underlying that dynamic of kind of the consumption of pain that could become a messy dynamic in our pilgrimage or other spaces that we're in, we really wanted to highlight that living and thriving in uh, as a person of color in the world, even in the context of 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, Wisconsin and Minnesota, is something that is powerful. Living without reference to whiteness, finding safe spaces, community places, maintaining culture where possible, sharing love and food and care, that is resistance. It is resilience. It is self-compassion. And it is trauma care. Yeah, and I think that those are both really meaningful points about not just the painful stories, but also the daily life resistance. Which brings me to one of the questions we were asked about how we get a handle on and talk about these complex, sometimes even painful and embarrassing people and events in the past. Mm-hmm. So that kind of makes me think around what we've been calling humane history which is our way of talking about history as more than just facts and grounded in the messiness of human people and cultures. We've talked about the anti-racist practice of cultivating a no heroes history. Hmm. And that's not the same as neutrality or reserving judgment or there's good people on all sides. Right. Using this kind of ethical lens says some people work for community thriving of all people and some people just don't Mm. so it's not just about not judging it's not flattening people into one or the other categories but still meaningfully asking some important questions Mm -hmm. like when do we just notice complexity how do we create a framework for ethical analysis right and who or what does it all serve That ethical analysis. That ethical analysis. So we're going to put forward two different metaphors, let us say, for thinking about how we might work with history through different ethical analyses. So the first model, which is the traditional model, okay, the one that a lot of us are probably familiar with, is history as a mirror, wherein we ask history, mirror, mirror on the wall, whose country is the fairest of them all? (laughs) And that kind of history makes a number of assumptions, okay? So the first assumption is that history is about facts and that it's only a reflection of clear factual realities about good and bad and that it is, quote, true, Mm -hmm. okay? Another assumption that it makes is that history is a reflection of us. So therefore, my ancestors reflect on me. And a lot of us might know this from the show, Who Do You Think You Are? Wherein people who are famous are asked early on, what do you hope you'll find? And they all say, well, I hope nobody in my past was terrible or that we were really rich and posh. (laughs) Why, right? Um, So that's that idea of heroes in history are people I want to admire and therefore I can't have different embarrassing histories. Either 
in my personal history or in our national history. The third assumption that it makes is that any one history situation is almost a one-to-one mirror of the present. And therefore, it gives us something that we can learn lessons from. And therefore, history has a point. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that can be... A one whole, point. One point. <laughs> Each one story, one point. Right? The final and fourth assumption that it makes is that history is static, fixed, and unchanging. So the question then is, what do all these assumptions serve? Well, you're going to be surprised to hear, but it's serving people with historical power. Right. Which often are white people, mm-hmm. often men, people with money or wealth, and the structures themselves that are already present. Therefore, the basis for the ethical analysis is that history must prove us worthy and our structures and systems logical. And that there's no other way things could be. So it actually locks us in to our present being our future without room to move very easily. So it's kind of like a giant justification dynamic for how things are now. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's all one system, right? History as a mirror. So here's the second system. And we're going to call this history as a lens. Okay. I don't have a rhyme for this one. (laughs) But I'm going to encourage you to think about it as though you were looking through a periscope, okay? In a submarine. In a submarine, as we all do. (laughs) So there's a couple of assumptions on this one. So the first assumption is that history is dynamic and complex. As with a periscope, there's a 360 degree view, which may mean that at any one moment, there are things you can't see within the field of view of where your lens is at the moment, and you may have to turn the lens to see more. The second assumption that it makes is that the lens itself may need to be changed. It may be flawed or dirty or not the right magnification. Mm -hmm. So that's something to consider. And therefore, re-examining history is okay and needed and expected. No photographer would go out with just one lens. No (laughs) self-respecting photographer. (laughs) I might, but that's because I have no self-respect as a photographer. (laughs) So that's something to consider. What lenses do you have with you? Another one is that history is its own reality. And that is perhaps the most important, right? Yes. The assumption that history is a reality independent of who we are now. And it's something we can definitely learn from, but it's not a set of dogmatic lessons. So all of this makes us ask again, who does this serve? If we take that periscope metaphor and model yes Yes. who is this serving history as a lens well it values all voices especially those who are marginalized from power and its basis for ethical analysis is considering on balance who and what serves the thriving of all people so these are clearly really different Mm -hmm. ways of interacting with history and this idea of history as a lens lens allows us to move away from a self-serving history and towards a history that allows for greater justice and different and new possibilities for our future. Right. And I really like it because it allows different people to say, hey, we need to change our lens. Hey, that lens is cracked or flawed. Hey, turn the periscope another direction. We're missing something. Yes. And so it, it creates, like you said, a dialogue. And so I think it's a way more interesting way of thinking about history than 
history as a flawless mirror that just reflects ourselves back to ourselves. Yeah. And it, it moves us from a history that is narcissistic in a way, egotistical, to a history that is... About community thriving. And bound up in justice. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about taking action. Our two weeks of taking action that we're in the middle of right now. And acknowledge how just touchy the theme of money maybe felt to some of us. And as we mentioned in our summary or overview, there are very good reasons we need to focus on money if we're going to do anti-racist living. Historically and actually... And we could add a lot more reasons. But the other truth is that daylight savings time has now ended. The holidays are going to be nothing like we hoped or expected. Stay home, stay safe, everyone. And also, it is getting cold around here. (laughs) So we may find that despite how much we know we need to have these conversations and take these actions, that it may feel hard to find our pace Mm. in the midst of these tough issues. We've even had people email us and say that this felt too depressing in the midst of everything that's going on. And yeah, it can be depressing. And these hard emotions are real. And even though we know that they are a road stop on the way toward our collective healing, we may still be tempted to say, I will address this when my life is easier, (laughs) when things are less stressful. When it is warmer outside and there is more light times in the day. But we also know that racism just does not go on pause because life is rough or there is snow on the ground. As so many things. With so many things in our lives, right? And so that's not to say that we don't need to find a way to dance with the dynamics that are going on in our lives. And we mentioned that in last week's email. But nonetheless, if anything, we have found that racism becomes more challenging and more stark, as we have seen in this past year around the pandemic and the economic impacts that it's had and the rise in violence in Minneapolis as a result of the over-policing, lack of accountability and overreaction to protesters that cause trauma and quitting and all sorts of issues within the police force. And we could go into that for a whole podcast, but the bottom line is, is that that is also a result of racism. It's not just a coincidence. So how, if the problems only get bigger, the more we put them off or sideline them, the more that other dynamics also influence them. And compound them. And compound them. How do we stay in this work of anti-racist living in a sustainable way? Now, really, that's a question of the whole pilgrimage year that we're on together. But there's also a specific practice that we wanted to talk about today that is the cousin to joy and resilience, which are both anti-racism spiritual practices in our list. And this is one that I use in my coaching and pastoral care work quite a bit. And it is the practice of playfulness, which is also a form of resistance and resilience. And it's one of my favorites because it's kind of unexpected. And sometimes it's a linchpin in that. Sometimes it's a linchpin. And I think what's tricky about it is how do we do it in a healthy and good way, right? It's not just telling jokes because that can go wrong very quickly. So (laughs) that highlights that this is not just about irreverence. Yes. Right? Playfulness is not about irreverence. It's actually the opposite. 
It's about flexibility and creativity and finding the joy and lightheartedness even and through difficult work. It's figuring out where we can create and laugh together in a good way that allows everyone into that conversation in a powerful way. So in that spirit of exploring this idea of playfulness as a potential practice that we could use in this solstice time of year, we have a challenge for you. And in the the remembrance that one of the things that we're doing on this whole pilgrimage is trying to decolonize our mindsets about these big things that we're taking action on, like land and money and property and power. We do that decolonizing work through the spiritual practices as well. So playfulness is decolonizing work. It may not feel that way, but I (laughs) promise it is. So we're going to ask you to use your playfulness and think about one spiritual practice, one tool, one insight that you have had so far on this pilgrimage in our first two cycles that has stuck with you. Go through your notes, go through your journaling, go through the doodles that you've made or sketches that you've put together, whatever, however you're keeping track of how you're moving in this pilgrimage. Pick an insight that you want to hold on to over the Advent season and as we start with cycle three in January and make it into a mascot. And the idea is that the mascot is going to be something from nature, an animal, a plant, a landscape. It could be that your mascot is a coral reef or a prairie. Your mascot could be a a bird or a specific bird or something like that. But whatever it is, you're going to find a mascot. Your personal dog. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It could be your own pet. But how does it exemplify this insight for you? And you're going to also pick a motto that goes with it, that reminds you. So a motto or a mantra that goes with it. So this may seem a little weird or a little amorphous, but, you know, let's roll with it together. And Elsa and I have actually thought of one for ourselves. So um, Elsa, what is your mascot and your motto? Okay. So my mascot, uh, I had to pick, of course, the noble beaver. Mm. And as anyone who's watched PBS's Leave it to Beavers will know... (laughs) It is the noblest creature in the land. It is. So this is because in creating their own habitat, beavers create habitat for others too. Beaver dams can turn a dried out over arid area and return it to a lush area in just a few years. And they do this because beavers deepen ponds and streams for their own defense. But that also makes the surrounding area more lush and habitable for other animals. Hmm. This could be seen as like a happy coincidence. But beavers not only create habitat, but they actually will let other small animals live in their lodges throughout the winter with them, Mm. using their same resources. And what that model of both like interior and exterior hospitality and community thriving shows is something that I would really like to aspire to. Mm. I think that's a really beautiful way to think about anti-racism work, too, because that idea of having a hospitable heart is what compassionate imagination is yes right and that idea a community for all exactly exactly so i think that's really beautiful i love that so um elsie ask me what mine is no no i don't want to i want you to ask me what my motto is (laughs) okay elsa what is your motto okay so my motto is uh works on many different levels at once of course uh and it is build some habitat for all give a damn (laughs) 
Um, that's really good. I Thank love you. it. Thank you. Um, but I still want you to ask me what mine is. Okay, but what is your animal? <laughs> okay. Or mascot. Mascot, sorry. Okay. So my mascot is not an animal. Indeed. It is a fungus. <laughs> beautiful. It is beautiful. I mean, it may not be beautiful looking, but I picked fungus as my metaphor, which, like, bear with me for a second. Indeed. But... It's not the fungus itself, like the part that shows above ground as a mushroom or something like that, but it's the root system mm. of fungi. They are called mycorrhizal networks or mycelial networks. They're connected to all the plants around them. So if you think about it, I think I read somewhere that there's a statistic that um, mycorrhizal networks connect about 90% of the plants on earth, something like that. I That's mean, it's an incredible number. So even if it was less than that, it would still be an incredible amount of plants that are connected by the root systems of fungus, which would merely be interesting if it wasn't also the underground internet of the natural world. Hmm. So the mycorrhizal networks function like a communication and collaboration system between plants and other uh, beings that have roots in the soil. So plants and trees will find water and share food. They will give notice of predators all through the chemical relays that happen in this mycorrhizal network. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It helps if they are connected into this network, these trees and plants, they resist disease better. <laughs> and it even helps nurture seedlings. So it's kind of like an interconnected, collaborative, cooperative, thriving system. Wow. And I love it because also whoever thinks about fungi that way? Yeah. Right? And so there have been books about it now, so it's kind of like a trendy thing to talk about. But I, the first time I learned about this a couple years ago, I was floored. And so it really speaks to me about the spiritual practice that we alluded to just briefly in our Conversation Seeds video, this this cycle, which was conspiration. It's in our list of spiritual practices. But I love that idea of how we collaborate for thriving together and how we create co-ops yeah. for doing that work. So that and, really helps me. And it really fits into that thing of like, we're not alone in this. Yes. Right? Yes. Which connects to so many things, even within our own faith. Right. And so I think it's really important, even when we think about this anti-racism pilgrimage, that there may be moments in our anti-racism work as we strive in our own lives that we feel alone because of who our relatives are or who our community is or who our neighbors are. We or may what feel we like, see on the news. Exactly. We may just feel alone in this work in certain ways or isolated in how we're trying to improve and how we see other people maybe not engaging with the work in the, the same kind of way. And I think it's really powerful to remember that those connections may just be in another spot and we're not looking there yet. Yeah. So part of the goal of this pilgrimage was also to connect us to each other. Yeah. And so your small groups are intentionally with folks of other congregations so that you can see who else is doing this work in other parts of this co-op of the presbytery and how we can collaborate together. So Elsa, you didn't ask me about my motto. I'm so sorry. Anna, what would be your motto? Um, my motto is not as delightful as yours, but you know, make like a tree and leave, right? Yeah. That pun. Okay. Yeah. So mine is make like a fungus and collaborate, which <laughs> doesn't even rhyme or make much sense. I like it because I'm going to pull, push my nose, my glasses up on my nose next. It's so snort. nerdy. Yeah. It's so nerdy. <laughs> but I like it. It's nerdy, but you know what? It totally works for me and it's yeah. going to help me remember that like sometimes the humble work of 
connecting and collaborating is the work. Yeah. And honestly, like I'll be truthful that as I step into the role of the anti-racism institutional assessment coordination, yeah. um, which is kind of alongside what we're doing in this pilgrimage, that feels really important to me because that's such a big part of that role is making those connections and just being a conduit in any way that I can with yeah. people. So, you know, these are some interesting ways that we've thought of to pull out highlights from what we've been thinking about in these last two cycles as we've kind of cultivated this experience. So you've heard our mottos and mascots, and now it's your turn. So we invite you to find a picture on Google or draw a picture, pick a motto, and send us something about what you come up with. What is your mascot from nature? What helps you stay focused or has inspired you along the way so far? You can drop it to us in an email. You can post it on the Anti-Racism Facebook page if you've joined that. You can post it in the Final Reflections link at the bottom of this week's email. But no matter what, let's just practice playfulness in a way that keeps us in this work together. That's the primary invitation behind all of this. And there are going to be moments in Advent and around Christmas and in throughout all of this time that we may flag in that. So just inviting you to invite a new spirit and a new energy into that conversation. All that being said, these have been just a few of our Backpages reflections from this past cycle. Thanks for joining us and stay well and stay connected. Thanks.